thing I failed to mention to Ron is uh, the price for the uh, trip, 65 per person for both exhibits, but that does not include our stay there. We'll have to we'll have to get a room and and we'll look into that once we determine how many people are interested in going. All right, if you would open your Bibles to Luke 13. Luke 13, we're going to notice verses 6 through 9. And tonight I want us to examine one of Jesus' parables, the parable of the barren fig tree. Jesus said, And a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig around it and dung it, and if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. Those who read the parables and those who study the parables are familiar with that literary genre. And being familiar with it, when we read that, we expect to read something that is believable. We're not looking for a fable or a myth or something like that. A parable is something that did happen or it could happen. It was something that, that happened within everyday life. Now, in his book, The Parables of the Kingdom, C.H. Dodd emphasized the credibility of the parables, saying, All is true to nature and to life. Each is a perfect picture of something that can be observed in the world of our experience. And when we study the, the parables, there's something else that often we may not uh, focus on necessarily, but it is important to understand the historical setting, the context in which the uh, parable was spoken. When we look at the parables, we learn that at least eight parables were given in answer to questions that Jesus was asked. Three were told uh, uh, after certain requests were made of Him. One parable was the Savior's response to an accusation that He received. One was prompted by the actions of the Pharisees. And He responded with a parable after the derision of the Pharisees toward Him. And two parables were delivered on feast days. And several of the parables stated their intended purposes. Prior to his giving this parable, the parable under consideration, the parable of the barren fig tree, uh, and by the way, only Luke records this parable, a group of people had come to Jesus and had interrupted him. And they interrupted him with some uh, current events, some news of the day. They had reported on some Galileans whom Pilate had killed and mixed their blood with the sacrifices they were offering. And I don't know if the tragedy uh, had just reached the area, if it had come by word of mouth, or uh, if it was just uh, the gossip that was going around. But often, if you notice, most people are interested more in current events than they are in eternal truths. Now, why was it that Pilate killed these Galileans? Well, we're not told. Whatever the reason for the massacre, though, Christ took that as an opportunity to teach a very important lesson. 
And in essence, the parable of the barren fig tree is a, is a parable and a lesson delivered to address the topic of repentance. And Jesus answering said unto them, Luke 13, beginning with verse 2, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelled in Jerusalem? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Now history gives us no indication of either of these tragedies. We're not given any details about it. Whoever the victims were, the Jews were, uh, they absolutely believed that these people suffered the fate they suffered because they were unusually bad sinners. Bad things happened to them because they did bad things. But that was kind of a common concept in the ancient world. We recall when Job was going through his issues. His good friends, his quote good friends came to him and they told him, look, this is happening to you because you've sinned and you refuse to admit your sin. So that was a common thought in the ancient world that things happened because you did something. Now, Jesus had previously taught his disciples though, John 9 verse 3, that you cannot determine guilt by what someone is suffering. Often the innocent suffer, don't they? Not because they've done anything wrong, but simply because that's what happened. Now in his rebuke, he demonstrated that all people prior to coming to God are sinners. Romans three twenty-three, And all who sin are worthy of death. Romans six twenty-three. People prior to coming to God, are sinners. Okay, People who obey the gospel and live in the light are not sinners. We can step out of the light, obviously, and we can stop living the way God wants us to live. Then we, can, we become sinners again. But we're not sinners if we obey the gospel and are faithful. So when Jesus heard this information or heard this current event, He came to a completely different conclusion than the people who came and told Him about it. Nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So in in this conversation, I think Jesus was detecting here the mark of a self-complacent spirit. He could identify the, the attitude of someone who felt that they were worthy of God's blessings and because they were living in this world without... Being killed in some way or some terrible thing happening to them that God approved of their lifestyles. Well, I don't think anything could be further from the truth. So, to correct that, Jesus taught the parable of the barren fig tree. And so, as we pass from the context into the message of this great parable, we first learn about the design of this vineyard wherein the tree was planted. There was a certain man. And uh, Jesus portrayed him as having planted a fig tree. I think that's very important for us to understand. The fig tree didn't simply just spring up. It didn't just come up on its own as a wild tree. It was planted on purpose. The owner of the vineyard wanted 
the fig tree there. He placed it in, a, in an area where it could uh, have access to good soil and it would have protection. When we read uh, the commandments Moses had given to the Israelites concerning some of them, how to plant your vineyards, how to plant your seeds and things of that nature. We see it in Deuteronomy 22 verse 9. He commanded thou shalt not sow thy vineyard with uh, diverse seeds, lest the fruit of thy seed which thou hast sown and the fruit of thy vineyard be defiled. So it's, it's very important to understand this tree was planted on purpose by the owner of the vineyard. And so uh, it was placed in an area where it had no title to. It had no right to be there other than the owner wanted it there and provided that for it. Uh, the language of the parable here, I believe, is very precise. The tree had been planted within the borders. It was planted on purpose. It was cared for, and it was protected. And so the owner had every right to expect when he went to the tree to find fruit on its branches. Now, one of the keys to the parable is furnished for us by the occasion. The peculiar privilege of the fig tree illustrated, though, the Jewish nation. Okay? He planted a tree, and now we see this privileged tree, and in essence, he's talking about the Jewish nation. A.B. Bruce said that a vine was more winsome, was a more winsome emblem than that of even the fig tree, and that Jesus employed this latter symbol, the fig tree, as a way to lower the pride of the hearers. Now, that whether or not that was the case, I don't know, but here's what we do know. We study the history of the Bible, and we read the customs and the manners of the people who lived in that time. The fig tree was very important to the people. They would understand that it would be planted on purpose. Uh, it was a staple as far as food goes. We recall in Genesis 3, verse 7, the very first time we hear about a fig tree. And that's when the uh, Adam and Eve, the first couple, had taken its leaves and sewn them together and made aprons to cover their nakedness. We understand that it was a very staple part of their diet when we read through the numbers, uh, particularly Numbers 20, verse 5, and one of the ten grumblings that Israel made or the ten complaints was that there was a lack of figs as they were wandering through the wilderness. So when we look through the statements of the prophets and we get over to Jeremiah 5, verse 17, we see the great threat that God delivered to those people when He told them that if they were unfaithful, He would smite their fig trees. He wouldn't have them anymore. They'd take out something that was extremely important to them. So they understand the significance of the fig tree. Now, also, as we look at the fig tree and understand some things about it, it has a very long maturation process. It takes a long time, and because of that, the fig tree was often viewed by Israel as a symbol of long-term peace and prosperity. The fig tree would last, and we read 1 Kings 4.25, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. From Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. So that represented good times. If the fig trees were producing like they should, everyone had a fig tree, everyone had a, had a vine, 
They had the things that were necessary. Now, this certain man's design was to plant a privileged fig tree. But what happened? He planted the tree that was his design, and he goes back these three years. What did he have? He had disappointment. That's our second point. After all the care, the time, and the money, there was no fruit on the tree. And he had every right to expect fruit. He planted the tree. He cared for the tree. He protected the tree. He had every right to expect that this tree would yield something for his efforts. Again, he said, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree. Now, we're not to take that as an indication that after three years, this certain man went and tried to find fruit. No, the indication is he came the first year, he came the second year, and then now he's coming the third year. So the first and second year was just as disappointing to him as this third year. But what does the, the three years represent? Fruit, fruitlessness, to begin with, is proof of barrenness, isn't it? He came for three years and he wanted to see some fruit, but he was nothing but bare. And so God does not tolerate fruitlessness, does He? I think as Jesus is uh, teaching these truths through this parable, perhaps the Jews listening to Him are beginning to catch on, right? Peter warned us also, Second Peter 1, 5 through 8. He said, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, into patience, godliness, into godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye, ye shall uh, neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, in within his disappointment of having no fruit, that led to his frustration and then the command to, cut it down. I can recall my dad would plant uh, fruit trees and he had them all over the place and he would go out and he was not very patient with the fruit tree. He'd give it a few years and, and he, would, uh, he would fertilize the thing, he would spray it, he would trim it, he did all the things that needed to be done and if it did not produce fruit, he would become angry and I told him one time, I said, well maybe you need to go out and and prune it. He said, I am going to go out and prune it right at the top of the ground. And so that's what happened here. This certain man was very frustrated. There was no fruit that was uh, uh, given, and his expectations were not realized. And so he became angry. Again, what are the, what are the, uh, what's the interpretation of the three years? Well, there may be no interpretation necessarily, just because there are uh, facts within a parable doesn't mean they that we need to understand that they mean a particular thing. Now they may name, they may mean something. Uh, some people feel that the uh, the three years symbolize Jesus' ministry. He ministered for about three and a half years. Some people feel like that it uh, covers the three dispensations of time: the patriarchal period of time, the mosaic period of time, and the Christian dispensation or it may just simply indicate a period of time I tend to believe maybe it just indicates a period of time 
that God had, has established. But whatever it, whatever it means, if it means anything, here's what we can know and what we can understand. God sought through life, through parable, through miracle, and through discourse to try to get Israel to be fruitful for Him. He made every effort and He did everything. He fed them. He protected them. He uh, uh, fertilized them in any way possible. So from time to time, as we look at the history of Israel, there were signs that there may be some fruit that might be presented. But in the end, what did the Jews do? Simply rejected Christ and they became barren. And He had nurtured them. We remember when he, when he looked out over Jerusalem and he wept and he said, If you had let me, I would have gathered you to myself like a hen gathers her chicks. He found corruption where he looked for holiness. He found contempt where he longed for reverence. And he found hate when all he wanted was godly love. He didn't ask too much. But the problem in the vineyard was one of the problems was this tree was content to receive the benefits of the sunshine, the benefits of the protection, the benefits of the good soil, without producing any fruit. So there came the command, cut it down. But there was another individual. There was a man who worked for this certain man. And so he came to the, to the certain man, the owner of the vineyard, who weathered the process of designing the garden, weathered the disappointment, and then finally this man asked for a delay. That's our third point. And this request was granted, wasn't it? Interceding on behalf of the tree, he said, let it go this year, one more year. I think when we read this and we understand the emotion in Jesus and His great love, and we think back as He was looking over to Jerusalem and He was weeping and He wanted to be able to gather them to Himself. It was His creation. We have to remember the Word became man, took upon Himself flesh and became Jesus, the Son of God. We see that we feel this same throbbing emotion as He looks out. And within this parable we see, give Him one more year. I read that same emotion or I feel that same emotion as he was hanging on the cross. Luke 23, 34, and he asked forgiveness for them because they don't know what they're doing. I think there's another very important aspect that the reader should understand. The dresser didn't ask for an eternity. He didn't ask the certain man, the owner of the vineyard, to just, just never touch the tree. He simply asked for a short period of time. Give us one more year. And not an indefinite existence. Give us one more year. Let me do all I can do to help bring this tree around. If under further attention it were to bear fruit, everyone would be pleased, the tree would continue. But if it does not, the dresser was not going to stand in the way of the owner who had every right to remove the tree. He wasn't going to do that. And all he requested was a short delay. But for what was the vine dresser really asking? What was the whole point of the, of the parable? 
He was asking for repentance, wasn't he? Now let's keep in mind the historical uh, context here. The Galileans had been killed. Uh, the people misunderstood that to mean that, that they were more sinful than anyone else, especially those standing there, those Jews listening. They had held themselves up. And I believe one's concept of God is linked and vitally linked to His obedience or lack thereof to God. How we consider God and how we view God has a great bearing on our obedience or lack of obedience. What about one who assumes that the difficulties in life are God's fault? Bad things happen. I'm going to blame God. I'm going to be angry with God. So I'm just simply going to turn my back on God. I believe that's an excuse to simply turn our backs on God. But what about the person who says, I I came to the position I'm in and I did it all on my own. Well, that's a, that's a wrong concept as well, right? I don't think those two people will have the attitude suitable to being obedient to God. I think we need to be careful when we lay accusations at God's feet. Have you ever heard someone talk about the death of another and make the statement, well, God called them home? They may have had a, a, a heart attack or a car accident or any number of things might have happened, but God called them home. What about, have you ever heard the phrase, well, God must have had a better plan for that individual and often spoken after the person may have done something very foolish that cost him or her a life. How many people are so fast to blame God for the catastrophes that happen in this world? We have a hurricane come through in the Gulf or on the East Coast and innocent people are killed and and someone wants to, to blame God. Jesus was asked about some Galileans. He was asked about the men on whom the, the Tower of Siloam fell. But do you notice that, that he was asked about the Galileans that Pilate killed? Not the Galileans that God killed. He asked about the, the, uh, the men who the Tower of Siloam happened to fall on. He didn't, he didn't ask about the people that God killed by having the Tower fall on them. Were the men of Siloam greater sinners than anyone else simply because something bad happened to them? Of course they weren't. We have to repent of such thinking if that's what our ideas are, right? Who's to blame for the barren reaction to God's requests from Judah, from Judah, uh, from uh, Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel throughout their history? Who's who's to, who's to be blamed for that? Well, the southern kingdom's to be blamed. The northern kingdom's to be blamed, right? God didn't kill the men of Siloam. Did God cause Israel to be disobedient? Well, of course He didn't. So we need to be careful how we speak in terms referring to God. But Jesus insisted here that Israel was the barren fig tree. Who does a certain man represent? He represents God. God has every right to expect his creation to bear fruit, Isaiah 5, 1 through 5. But the fig tree, that's Israel, they failed to do what God expected. The plea by the vine dresser, 
I think we're talking about Jesus here. He represents one last effort to summon Israel to repentance. And we see it again through the life of Jesus. Standing, looking out over Jerusalem. You know, there came a time in Jesus' life when He no longer would enter the temple and He stopped referring to it as my Father's house. He began to say, it's your house. There comes a time when the vine dresser simply can do nothing else. He was trying to summon Israel to repentance. Now there's a story told. It's a a fable of an imaginary conversation between a farmer and his fruit tree. He went out to the fruit tree and it didn't have fruit on it, so he asked the tree, he said, why aren't you bearing fruit? The tree replied, said, well, it is so exhausting to bear fruit. But he said, on top of that, when I did bear fruit, he said, some of it fell to the ground and rotted. And when I had good fruit on my branches, people came to pick the fruit, they damaged my limbs. And so, what do you expect, Mr. Farmer? He said, well, I expect you'll make good logs for my fire. What's the application of the barren fruit tree? The unrepentant sinner will not see heaven. The unrepentant sinner is a fruitless fig tree. The person who has never obeyed the gospel is a fruitless fig tree. When we look at the parable, God's just trying to explain to us. He expects things from His creation. He doesn't just expect something from people who are obedient to Him. He expects the disobedient to become obedient, doesn't He? To become faithful. The unrepentant sinner who blames God for his problems, he is someone who is full of self-love, I believe. And he imagines that his problems are so unique that his are the only ones that matter. In this parable, Jesus taught a very important lesson about repentance. It's demanded. That truth is emphasized in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. When John the Baptizer came preaching that the kingdom was at hand, what did he demand? Repentance. When Christ came preaching the kingdom is at hand, he, de- he demanded repentance. When he gave the Great Commission, repentance was part of the command, wasn't it? Repentance will be taught first in Jerusalem. And we see it happen on the first Pentecost following His resurrection. And and Peter made that statement. He said repentance was required, Acts 2 verse 38. Have you ever thought about why the Bible places so much emphasis on repentance? Is it difficult to believe in God, the person who has an open mind and an open heart, to believe that there is a God when sufficient evidence has been presented? That's not difficult, is it? Even those who aren't necessarily obedient to God will have a belief in God. They'll have even at least a concept of some kind that Jesus Christ is God and that He's the Son of God. So they'll have that. That's not that difficult. It's not difficult after having uh, come to that understanding to make that statement. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's not difficult to, to step into the the baptistry, is it, or into the creek or into a swimming pool or something like that and to be immersed in water in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit 
for the remission of sins. That's not a difficult thing, is it? But you know what is difficult? Repentance is difficult. Why? Why is repentance difficult? I think it strikes at the very part of the person that a lot of people have difficulty with. Pride, doesn't it? Someone's telling me that I have to do something, that I have to change in some way. True repentance requires that change, doesn't it? If we're really going to repent, something has to change. And that's why repentance, and then after having obeyed the gospel, that faithfulness makes it a little difficult because we have to continually repent of wrongs in our lives when they come up. Again, most most in the religious world view repentance as something that is incorrect. They think repentance is simply being sorry for something. Well, if, if we're going to properly repent, we have to be sorry for the sin. There's no doubt about it, right? But Paul talked about two different kinds of, of sorrow. He talked about a sorrow unto life and a sorrow unto death, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. That sorrow unto death is, he called it a godly sorrow. Now that's a sorrow that I wish I hadn't got caught. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm not sorry for doing what I did. The, the godly sorrow is I'm sorry first and foremost for sinning against God and hurting Him. You know, when we, when we hurt people we love in this life, it hurts us, doesn't it? We don't want to see that pain, that agony, because we have love in our hearts. And that's absolutely necessary, isn't it? Now, we're not able to repent if we're not sorry. If we don't have sorrow. But we have to have the correct kind of sorrow. And again, it must be that godly sorrow. And when we add all that together, and we look at the plan of salvation, not difficult at all. It's not difficult if we come to the understanding that God's who He said He was. Jesus is who He said He was. It's not difficult to confess His name. It's not difficult to be baptized in water, to have our sins washed away. But we have to really consider this idea of repentance. That's why He taught the, the parable of counting the cost. Let's count the cost. Don't build, a, don't build a tower unless you've got the money to finish it. Don't go to war unless you know you have enough military personnel to win the war. Or else you're going to have to give up. You're going to have to send an ambassador to make terms of peace. Or you just have to simply quit building the tower. That's what counting the cost is. It's counting the cost and understanding what it means to be a Christian. I need to repent. I need to give up certain things, right? If I'm living in a way that's contrary to what God wants. He expects that and He has every right to expect that because He owns the vineyard. He planted the fig tree and He expects the fruit. You've never obeyed the gospel. Do that tonight. That's what God expects us to do, and He has every right to do that. If you have, you become unfaithful. Come back to God. Don't be barren. Think about the things that that Peter demanded that we have in our lives, and if we have those things, we'll never be barren or unfruitful. And that's what God expects. If you have need to answer this Lord's invitation, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.